Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Welcome back, everyone, to another Pain Talk podcast. So today I have a really big treat for you. We're going to talk with Dr. Alan Finley and Aaron Aubrey about all things child kind with respect to uh, child kind certification. So Dr. Alan Finley is a pediatric anesthetist who has worked for more than 30 years in pain research and management. He's a professor of anesthesia and psychology at Dalhousie University and medical director of pediatric pain management at the IWK Center in Halifax, Nova Scotia. He has published over 130 papers in peer-reviewed journals and has lectured widely with more than 300 invited presentations on six continents. He started the Pediatric Pain Email Discussion List in 1993, bringing together pain researchers and clinicians from over 40 countries. His own research and education projects have recently taken him to Jordan, Thailand, China, Brazil, and everywhere. His main focus is advocacy for improved pain management for children in both developing and developed countries. Aaron Aubrey is someone we've met previously as well, who is a knowledge translator uh, located at the IWK, who works extensively with the pediatric pain program at the IWK. So what is child kind certification? So Dr. Finley is going to talk about that, but it is an international organization that helps to reduce pain in children. And so I think it's such an important organization that we all need to uh, know about and each of our facilities, in particular our own institutions, should look at this as a possible commitment, I should say, to pediatric pain management in our institutions. And I think it makes sense. So we, there are so many myths that Dr. Finley will talk about. Uh, so let's just get right at it. And we're going to start the conversation with Dr. Finley and Aaron Aubrey. And you're at home, are you, Alan? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's great. I've been home for five weeks now it feels like oh you're kidding a month anyway yeah so when you're doing yeah, I'm on week six. Oh my gosh yeah see I work in Emerge so it's been absolutely inspiring but also insane how mm. we've restructured the acute care piece um, in the emergency department and you know for years and years you've kind of had some challenges around you know offboarding you know when uh, paramedics would come in and couldn't find spaces for patients to put them in rooms while there is no issue around offboarding right now. So (laughs) everybody's finding a bed, but it's almost like you're waiting for this mass casualty. And I hate to Mm. use that term because of what's happened in Nova Scotia, but you're just, you're all on edge uh, around what's coming in through the front door and, and being prepared for that. But every day, and I'm sure you guys find this too, we are getting notifications over and over again and it's getting a little bit overwhelming um mm-hmm. especially around yep. um you know ppe and around airway management and oh geez i'm yep. like okay guys protocols changing i get the same emails so i get emails from nsha and from the IWK, and then they get repeated by various other processes within the IWK. so i get the same things over and over so i've yeah. Mostly stop reading them. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's dangerous too, isn't it? In some way, because we're, we have to be able to filter out what's important. I've been doing a, an OR a day every three to six months kind of thing. Right. And with the cut, you know, elective surgery is 50% or less uh, of normal. So I've not been involved in the OR planning or the airway team planning at all. 
Yeah, because uh, there's more in it, more than enough of my colleagues in the, in pediatric anesthesia to deal with that. It's, it was interesting. I uh, so I do some palliative care too. I mean, it's a rural community. Obviously, yes, it sounds like, yeah. but. Uh, how much, I mean, it was interesting. So we, we've been trying to keep the palliative care unit sort of a COVID-free unit. And, and it seems mm. to be fine because you're right, Alan, that we don't have a ton of people within the, the system mm. now that are needing inpatient care. Most are being managed yeah. as outpatients. But um, the confusion around this poor bugger who needed to be on his CPAP, he's guy with ALS, and people are like, well, can he come in with a CPAP? Can he not? And I said, okay, people, of mm. course, he can come in with a CPAP. We might need to put the HEPA filter on there. But my goodness, this is a guy mm. that is not a high risk for COVID. You're not going to put a patient with these significant airway issues uh, who is dying from his illness and not offer him CPAP, mm. especially if it's he's using it at home. So yeah. the, people are just paralyzed by some yeah. of the, you know, trying to, and I understand where it's coming from. It's coming from that, that need to keep everybody safe um, and mm. making sure that we're not exposing healthcare providers, you know, to unnecessary risk. Yeah. But it still is, it's just like we've lost common reason, you know? Well, that's yeah. like being forced to make quick decisions. Like the healthcare system doesn't do that. And people within it, I think, kind of come pace to that. And then all of a sudden stuff is changing so rapidly. And I feel like, I think the... Yeah. paralyzing is a really good way to describe it because i think like that's such a basic thing of course that person can come in that's what they live with yeah um, yeah but yeah it, that's so interesting and i don't yeah. think that's a, a bad thing to say that alan that it is paralyzing because i don't think people really understand how much care has been put on hold uh, mm. and you know the reality mm -hmm. is is that we are going to be living this until we get a vaccine uh maybe not to this extreme but I, I, when i think of hospital-based care it is, this is how it's going to be uh, in terms of uh, how we're going to manage uh, patients yeah. that are coming through those front doors. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The only way I've been able to get access to Meditech, which all our patient records are on, is by taking home a laptop from the hospital, which means other people on the team can't use it, Yeah. Um, from our clinic. And in spite of the fact that the technology is perfectly capable of letting me do it from my Mac, they won't let me do it. Yeah, and the people who are making decisions about <clears throat> so-called privacy and security don't have anything to do with patient care. And yeah. security is their first priority yeah. when patient care should be the first priority. Yeah, exactly. So how are you um, reaching out to patients and families? Initially, uh, our kids were all doing well, and when our uh, admin booking person was calling them to cancel the appointments when they shut down, uh, everybody was fine. It said, no problem, you know, we appreciate that, and let us know when you're ready for us to come back in kind of thing. And I, you know, for a lot of the kids, the pain is exacerbated by stress, and stress is related to school and activities and yeah. socialization, yeah. and all those went away. Yeah. However, uh, you know, I am cer was certain, and we're now starting to see that it's going to start building up. Yeah. yeah. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, we always have less issues with most of these patients during the summer, for example. The, the benefits of sitting home playing video games. Are, there's no benefit long-term, obviously. Right. The short-term benefit, I think, will be wearing off. Yeah. And so the uh, there's going to be a crash for a lot of these kids. Yeah. 
So we're starting, our psychologists have been doing a lot of phone check-ins with people. I've done a couple of phone uh, visits with people. Uh, I can use healthcare Zoom myself, uh, sort of unofficially. There hasn't been a need yet, really, but yeah. I, I, I'm going to push harder for that. But trying to get a proper clinic appointment done with Zoom, which, you know, SickKids has now been doing it for a month. Yeah. They were real, and they've been doing it all along from home or their phones or wherever they happen to be. Yeah. Um, is it's really annoying that we're not they're not letting us do that. Yeah. And it's happening within the health authority. That's what's kind of insane and and uh, yeah. the the experience that I've had for patients, they are just so grateful to to connect, you know, yeah. to a healthcare provider. And uh, you know, we've had uh you know, like our one of our our psychologists is actually in home in Port Oxbury, so she's sure. she checks in, and so when we're doing these clinical appointments, and we've been able to figure out because we do our notes um, as a group, and so um, so we each contribute to the the note that goes out to the family physician, mm -hmm. and so you end up encrypting that and sending it to her, and so you just figure it out, you know, so that people are putting the information there, so people are doing it, and and I must say, Alan, when I walked away from it, it was like this is the coolest thing. And oh, yeah. it made me realize, you know, I, I do think that at least one inpatient interaction, you know, with a healthcare provider is really important. But some of these follow-up appointments, you know, especially when people are traveling long distances, mm. you know, mm -hmm. you could just make their life so much easier and uh, help them, although gas is pretty cheap right now. But, you know, financially, yeah. there are huge strains for some of these families. And I just see so many possibilities. You know, yeah, we get, we get patients from Bathurst. Yeah. And yeah. Sydney, yes. Sydney and Yarmouth and Surrey PEI. Yeah. So, <clears throat> and I think that's um, that's important because you guys just don't serve as Nova Scotia. Yeah. I mean, we've always done telehealth, but they have to go into a hospital for that uh, for recheck appointments. Um, I think I could even see how you... we could do it from home, it'd be so much easier. Oh, yeah. I could even see from... Because uh, a big part of what we do is the pain self-management piece. And, uh, you know, you could see the... Although they're telling us that we can't use Zoom for pain self-management, I guess there's some... I don't know what the issue is yet. We haven't dug into it. But that kind of technology, I think, could be really important, especially for some of these very... Because we these isolated communities where you're not seeing the uptake... People come into the clinic, they're keen, but they just can't find people to help them drive or, you know, yeah. get the money to help them. And so, oh, totally. I mean, you're probably more likely to get that participation, but also give them an opportunity to learn how to manage that complex pain. Mm. All right. So is there, are there things set up for pain resources for families, you know, say if they were, because I'm sure there's a huge amount of wait, a wait list that's there. What are you telling people who are on wait lists? Well, we, we had our wait list down to sort of four months or so. Okay. Before this happened, we were uh, doing pretty well. And, and <laughs> you know, there's some logic, unless it's a clear-cut new neuropathic pain or cancer pain, yeah. there's a logic to not seeing people too quickly because you see them within two weeks, sometimes the pain has gone away. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, that's true, too. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, we totally take credit for that. Yeah. <laughs> so you just need. Oh, you've come to see us today, and your pain's all gone. Isn't that great? <laughs> yeah, I'm glad it worked. Uh, so yeah. that's a big part too. We forget that the the pain clinic also manages acute pain as well. But we not as outpatients. We don't. No, no, I know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it, you know, they're separate uh, streams. But no, in terms of the chronic pain clinic, if if we respond to a consult too quickly, sometimes that's a waste of the patient's time and our time because. It's settled, but we have 
tiers for uh, for triage for for acceptable wait times. And if somebody has a new onset CRPS or something, we want to see them right away because absolutely we can fix it. If yeah, we see them right away. I think it just highlights too the oftentimes when I get these uh, panic referrals, what I'd rather than do is to pick up the phone and call me because sometimes you can help them work through it. It's it's exactly. so the healthcare provider or the healthcare team are just a little bit overwhelmed uh, with some aspects of the uh, of how hmm. patients are managing the pain, but also what kinds of therapies that they can bring into yeah. it. And uh, it often often says consult. We see that a lot in palliative care as well. Have you seen the e consult? program i haven't but i'm really keen on getting yeah. involved in that i i uh, i know that um it's supposed to be coming and i and i think it's um i'm trying to think who's involved it, in that it's up in new brunswick and a number of oh, other provinces yes. yeah. but uh and uh, you know uh, <laughs> seeing as i have you on the phone <laughs> um <clears throat> You know, I, I was pushing for a long time to think we need to do primary care teaching in pediatric chronic pain. Mm -hmm. And then I thought about that more and realized that the average family doc doesn't see pediatric chronic pain very frequently. Mm -hmm. And they have to know everything about everything else. Right. <laughs> I cannot imagine keeping track of diabetes and hypertension and this and that and obstetrics and well baby and everything that family physicians do. It blows my mind. Yeah. <laughs> I have so, so much respect for them. Yeah. Um, and I realized going to a seminar or a workshop on pediatric chronic pain for something you might see six months or a year from now, they're not going to do that. Or, and, and they don't have time to do that. Mm -hmm. General pediatricians do and should because mm -hmm. they're the next stage in referral. Right. Yeah. But that's just in case learning. Right. Just in time learning is e-consult, and that's what I think. Yeah. It, it, would you agree with that from well, your perspective? Yeah, I do think it's really important. But, but then you can take a step back, though, Alan. Mm -hmm. Even though, I mean, pain is the most common thing we see in clinical practice, whether it's sure. in pediatric pain, whether it's in adult pain. And when I look at the amount of training and understanding of pain um, as an experience, as well, you know, just in terms of looking at it as part of that alarm system, we don't have a lot of, uh, like, I mean, I did a nursing degree and a medical degree, and I got no training at all in pain, no, yeah. just general pain, acute pain. Yeah, exactly. So I know that there's some work mm. that's being done nationally. Mm. But coming to an understanding that, that you know, this is how pain works, um, you know, this it has a function, but we don't want it to shut people down, and this is what we need to do, and here are the red flags. I mean, we do that with training oh, yeah. around acute coronary syndrome. You know, I look at ACLS, ATLS, Right those advanced yeah, yeah, yeah. cardiac life support. Well, you could do a pain life support in the sense of, of giving people some basic sort of understanding. And then you look at some of the complexity, right? So that's the other level. So yeah. I think no, there's tremendous that, opportunity. That applies yeah. across the board, across yeah, the age yeah, range. Yeah, But yeah. I, I'm talking about, you know, getting into specifics of pediatric uh, pain. managing pediatric chronic pain problems. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I can't believe people have the time for that when they have so much other stuff to keep track of. Well, but you know what? Up to date on. Most, most, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll, I'm going to kind of uh, challenge you there, yeah. Alan, is that okay. in the colleagues that I work with, and even in the clinical practice, when you see a kid who has significant suffering and you're yeah. trying to, and even, even if you're not recognizing it as pain, because obviously kids sometimes don't express it as a pain experience, right? Yeah. But, mm. but I think having those conversations around complex 
um, you know, pain, that kind of thing. Most clinicians, in my view, are desperate to have information how to approach that. And there is no magic bullet. But I do think I could see a, a pain um, a sort of pediatric pain being brought into say something like you know even even the emerge update right so just looking okay. at pain, pediatric pain in the emergency room and a lot yeah. of primary care practitioners so you start the conversation but you talk about pain but then you talk about one of the complexities of a pain experience is something mm. called chronic pain which is a separate experience right and how we might approach mm. that differently than chronic pain or acute pain but yeah. I, I, my experience okay. has been people are really, they just, they're, they just want to understand it. Uh, healthcare providers want to understand it, uh, want to understand how they can support the parents. Um, just even little pearls, you know, sometimes can make okay. a difference. Well, and the first thing is to believe them. Yeah, to believe them. <laughs> that, that's, re, that's reassuring. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, we've suggested it for the Dow Refresher courses over the years and never really had much enthusiasm but really oh my goodness okay yeah. we need to work on that because yeah. um and i think it's how we come at it so i, I you know i look at mm. you know one of the things that you know what maybe a good sort of topic would be the prevention of pain, pain chronification in pediatric pain do you know what i mean yeah. something and then yeah. people say well what is pain chronification right you know yeah and they get curious so you you make it a little bit more science-based and then people say We'd wow this happy. can happen in kids <laughs> We'd be happy to do something for uh, if there's a regional family practice. Yeah, there there something is something we could do yeah. a half day workshop or a three hour workshop. Anything. Yeah, yeah, and this is where you can have a specialty kind of what you see sometimes with the Canadian Association of uh, Merge Physicians is yeah. they do these road shows, but they kind of link them on. So an airway road show or a, you know I've always said if you could do a pain road show. Uh, yeah. Looking at not just the you know the pathophysiology or, or looking at the physiology of pain, but also looking at techniques that you can use. You know, in kids, it would be because physicians love to do hands-on things. So, yeah. are there things that you can do around you yeah. know blocking or things around pharmacology, things around you know just looking at the interventional things you can do, distraction techniques. You know, there's yeah. so much on robots now, even though most Mike, facilities are not going to have that. Yeah. But Mike Sangster does a brilliant workshop yeah. oh, Mike, on yeah. physical exam and uh, yeah. and movement. Yeah, I actually interviewed stuff. Mike for the podcast. He's on one I of the know. podcasts. And I my know. sister who listens to it, she said, I love that guy. <laughs> Yeah, I know he's. I know, I know he's just amazing. And uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So we okay. could do a we could do a mix. Oh yeah, I don't you think know, you should. I think it's really how you appeal to physio yeah. workshop sometimes. Yeah, exactly. So you make it a multi, make it a multidiscipline, yeah. but look at pearl based. So what clini- mm. clinicians want to know is mm. how do you deal with an how how might what what are some good pearls that you can deal with a parent that's so frustrated they just come at you you know with mm. anger right you know mm. what it might what might be just a talking point, mm. um, you know like a, one of the things I use sometimes when people are really pissed off. You know, when they come into the eMERGE because they're fed up with everything I, and you're trying to have these difficult conversations and they get more mad at you, you just come back at them and said, the reason I'm having the conversations, I really care about you. I really mm. want to see if we can make this work. So that doesn't mm. take a lot. And they just decompress, you know. Mm. <laughs> anyway. I guess anyway, what we're, right. Yeah, so I don't think you should lose sight of that. I think you should start thinking about this. I think it'd be pretty exciting to uh, have mm. things that are really practical. Yeah. Um, and talking points, those kinds of things. And uh, yeah, so I guess what we're talking about today, though, is actually the child kind, kind certification. So I just wanted to uh, just start and either Aaron or you or Alan could answer this is that what is a child kind certification? Well, Child Kind International is uh, an initiative that was established 
by the Special Interest Group on Pain in Childhood of the International Association for the Study of Pain. And the, the goal is to certify hospitals that have established policies and protocols and practices to prevent and treat pain in children. Uh, all types of pain, but particularly the pain that's caused by needle procedures, by surgery, by disease for patients who are in the hospital. The idea is that uh, that's the resources that Childkind provides and the uh, framework provides support for people working with patients in those hospitals who are trying to improve their pain care and also provides an incentive for the hospital administration to support this and uh, encourage development of these programs. This works in a variety of ways. Um, obviously, in countries where hospitals work in a market environment where they're trying to uh, market their services to patients, they, that gives them an added uh, attraction. Uh, but in any country, uh, good hospital administrators, directors, CEOs uh, should want to be able to show that their hospital meets a high standard of care mm. and that they recognize this as a standard that they should be uh, striving for. So the ones that I've seen, um, that institutions that have actually acquired the Childkind certification tend to be pediatric uh, facilities. Is that right? Um, most of them so far have been, but there's no reason why it has to be a okay. pediatric specialty hospital. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Any hospital can achieve it. The focus is obviously on children, on a pediatric unit uh, and clinics, but uh, it has to be an initiative of the whole hospital. Mm. It can't just be the pediatricians running a, a small pediatric unit who achieve it for their unit, it has to have institutional support and institutional commitment. Yeah. But there are a number of general hospitals who've been certified in the US, and uh, there's no reason why that can't happen. The other thing I find so important is that it, it uh, puts a focus on one particular area, but what it can do as well, because I, I keep coming back to when our, uh, our, our hospital went through a trauma accreditation, and it was uh, sort of a, just a, a refocus. It, we, we were struggling as a department to see ourselves as, a, as an emergency department at that time. We weren't seeing lots of patients. But what it did, it, it actually helped to refocus energy, negative energy, within our institution to work towards getting that. Because it, it, it actually affected every aspect, not just the emergency department, but you know, our obstetrics, our pediatrics, our internal medicine, because we were getting geriatrics, we were getting ICU, like all of this trauma and involved all kinds of different aspects of the hospital. But it really helped to refocus energy for the institution and work towards something that was, they could be proud of. And I see the exact same thing with this, this child kind uh, certification. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We have, we have no objections if it spills over to adult care as well. Well, and you know, when we did the, um, when we did the trauma accreditation, we actually linked with the IWK and the, um, and the health, co uh, the, the Queen Elizabeth. So we were the only level two facility that, that did that. But do you see something like that kind of a partnership within, like within the Nova Scotia and all the regional centers doing something that would link us all to the IWK around the child kind certification? 
Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we'd love to see that the IWK isn't yet certified. Right, um, right. Which is slightly embarrassing for me, but the, the work is in progress. Um, it has been interrupted by a couple of things over the years, the change in CEO and, and a number of issues. And uh, things were running very smoothly on stream until COVID hit. So yeah, yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. that, that has uh, clearly uh, delayed any policy or program initiatives. Did you want to add anything, Erin? I, I heard you there. Oh, I was just going to say, and Alan normally says this as well, talking about kind of the overall awareness, like if there's spillover or if it's not just a pediatric institution, which we have had more interest kind of with Skip talking about it more and people asking more questions about child kind is that we've kind of likened it to the baby friendly initiative or the BFI. So it's kind of that that overall awareness in the hospital that if, if any staff member is stopped, whether they work in um, women's care or children's pediatric emerge, um, they will know at least, oh yes, we are child kind certified or we're working towards this because we prioritize evidence-based pain management. Um, you can always ask your care provider about that. Um, and so I think that's uh, kind of a similarity and with the IWK, for instance, go going through and being baby friendly um, certified, they, uh, I think it's a good similarity for staff to kind of understand like, oh, this is how that process works. And it's a general awareness that needs to be kind of throughout the institution. So I think, you know, why I'm putting it out there too, in terms of linking other centers that when we tried to recertify for trauma accreditation, the health authority would not let us do it unless we did it as a systems accreditation. So we had to get all the other uh, hospitals on board, which is a challenging, I think. But the child kind, I think, would be almost a little bit of an easier initiative because you've got people that are going to buy in so quickly, right? So I think all of us want to be managing uh, pediatric pain more effectively. And like you said, Alan, just how it could spill over into the adult population as well. So what are some of the criteria that, uh, that institutions need to achieve in order to get this, um, this certification? All the information is, is on the website, childkindinternational.org. Um, there are five basic criteria. And uh, to achieve certification, the hospital has to prove that they meet those five criteria. First one is that there has to be a hospital-wide policy about children's pain that is saying something to the effect of, we care about pain in children, we'll do everything we can to prevent it, and we want you, the patient and family, to let us know if, you, uh, if uh, we're missing something. There have to be protocols in place for the types of pain that are likely to be issues in your hospital. So for example, if you treat children with pediatric, uh, uh, pediatric cancers and you know that they're going to have mucositis from uh, chemotherapy, you, have, you really have to have a protocol for managing pain from mucositis. If you don't treat that type of patient, you don't need to have that protocol. But every hospital needs to have protocols for preventing and managing needle pain because every hospital does that to children. Yeah. Every hospital takes blood samples, starts intravenous catheters, does biopsies. There has to be a um, program of regular pain assessment and then reassessment to make sure the intervention has, has dealt with the, the issue. There has to be an education program for staff and for families 
about what pain is, why it's important, and how to recognize uh, the issues. And finally, there has to be a quality uh, improvement or quality management program to make sure that uh, we're all keeping track of the first four uh, principles. So what kind of quality indicators are you guys using? Is it sort of time to treatment or pain intensity? or? So ChildKind doesn't specify uh, specific requirements for these criteria. Um, you know, we don't say you have to give morphine in this dose at this frequency. Mm. Okay. Um, we say you have to have a program for treating pain. You have to have the medications available. You have to have the non pharmacological treatments and preventive maneuvers available. Uh, Those may vary depending on um, the hospital location and resources. For quality assurance, it could be, uh, you know, the simple things would be including chart audits, for example, to make sure that pain assessment is being done and to make sure that there are rechecks and that high pain scores are being dealt with. Drug orders or treatment orders uh, could be audited. Uh, So there are a variety of ways to do that. And again, it it varies uh, place by place. Mm. Um, One hospital, you know, has a nurse on each unit that uh, has allowance in her job profile to uh, every month or so um, pick a number of random charts from uh, her unit's uh, um, records and go through and look for pain assessment. Uh, that's, that's a sort of very locally done QI, and it has the advantage that it's pretty immediate. You know, major uh, audit and feedback uh, programs that are hospital-wide sometimes don't get the feedback till it's so long after the event that uh, nobody learns from it. So this is an advantage. Does it focus mostly on acute pain, Alan, or do, does it pull in some chronic pain as well? And, and I'm just thinking in terms of goals of care around functional management versus pain management. Is that something that it looks at as well? It's mostly focused on acute pain because those are certainly things that we know how to prevent yeah. and know how to treat. If the child kind is assessing a hospital that has a multidisciplinary chronic pain program, then they'll be expected to show evidence that that functions appropriately. But if there isn't a chronic pain program for kids, then, you know, that's not a requirement. Right. Um, So the the expectations really are based on the patient profiles, the treatment modalities, resources, and focus of the individual hospital, whether it's a, you know, tiny cottage hospital with, you know, three pediatric beds, or whether it's Boston Children's or Sick Kids Hospital, any of those should be able to fit within the framework. It's harder in the big hospitals because more layers of committees and administrations have to approve everything. Yeah, you know, I noticed that right away when I went, I used to work in a tertiary center uh, and then when I went to uh, a small rural center, I was amazed at how easy it was to get things done. You just get overwhelmed in bureaucracy. And I think that's that in the bigger facilities, but I almost would feel that kind of overwhelming bureaucracy when we switched to the Nova Scotia Health Authority. <laughs> you saw, you saw exactly. a big difference in terms of our ability to get work done and get things done. 
Exactly. Yeah. So that was one. Now maybe this COVID has actually allowed us to break down a lot of those those barriers for sure. So maybe it would make it people would be more open to um, looking at at how to make something like this happen, even within the rural communities, right? Does it is a process a, a U.S. certification or is it can it be a Canadian certification? The organization is happens to be based in the U.S. Okay. Uh, because uh, that's where the the president works and uh, where we were able to get um, administrative uh, help and support. But it's we regard ourselves as an international organization. Yeah. We currently only have two hospitals in Canada that are certified, uh, but there are a number in the pipeline and expecting, hoping to be, or we're at least... A, we're hoping to be certified this year, although everybody's uh, set back for now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, a major goal uh, of the organization, and certainly my goal when I was involved in starting it, was that this would be an international thing. Somehow international sounds better than U.S. I'm not sure why, but I, oh, yeah. I, so, I just, absolutely. I think, I think, gosh, yeah. So knowing that globally that there is this movement, you know, uh, yeah. to be more effective absolutely. using that science, you know, using <clears throat> people's experiences and yeah. looking at what people have done well. Is there anything yeah. like this in, you know, health, I was just thinking about Accreditation Canada, sort of, do we have anything like this? Skip actually has been working with uh, Accreditation Canada. Maybe Aaron would like to comment a yeah. bit on Accreditation Canada and HSO, so Health Standards Organization. So they split kind of into their own entities, but we're working right now with Health Standards Organization as one of our Skip partners to create a pediatric pain management standard. And so we have, I think we, we started that process probably a month and a half before all of this COVID stuff started, um, but they have had their first working group meeting. And it's a, it's a long process. It's about an 18 month um, lead up to have a standard be created, but they have um, a group established and, and we're hoping to have that uh, rolled out just because we have received a little bit of feedback about um, having something that is um, less optional, maybe is an appropriate word, but I think when people hear the word accreditation, Mm. And they hear um, that, that coming from that Canadian um, certification body, I think there's some weight that, that's behind that. And I think it, it helps um, pull folks along. And I think what's going to be important um, is that because when uh, the Trauma Association, I'm, I keep coming back to trauma because that's my only experience going through an accreditation process. When the Trauma Association of Canada was actually the accrediting body, and then it was handed over to Accreditation Canada, but what was so important, it was to make it uh, so if an institution was accredited, you know how they sometimes put their banner out, yes, we've received accreditation for the last two years. You almost need to identify these special specialty accreditations in, a, in of themselves so that the institution says, hey, look, you know, they've got a real keen interest in pediatric pain or a keen mm-hmm. interest in trauma that this matters, you know. Um, so just ma- having the ability to be, be able to shine more light on that. Uh, mm-hmm. certification. For a number of years, there's been language in Accreditation Canada standards for hospitals about pain management, but it, it's been a low priority, I think, on there. Childkind is aware that the standard is, is being created, and I think they're looking for ways to kind of interface and see how they can complement each other. And I think I really see it as 
a compliment in the sense that, especially because this will only exist in 18 months' time or depending on if there are delays or what's happening currently, but I think having child kind certification and kind of taking stock of your your own institution or organization's personal inventory of the policies, the procedures, the general awareness, ensuring that the best evidence-based practices are being used and, and everyone's aware and knows how to ask for those. Um, I think that would set organizations up very well for um, this accreditation standard when it does exist. So I think it's it's a, a nice way, it's a nice compliment. Yeah, and I think, I think what it, we need to remind ourselves too is that healthcare is happening, it happens in our communities. And uh, so the so when I think about our institution, and I, I can already identify people within our institution that I would know would be champions for this. So even mm. if we're even if we're starting to do this, it might be a great distraction from COVID institutional based, not so much Nova Scotia <laughs> Health Authority, but yeah. starting to look at our looking at our standards and protocols. I mean, we've got some amazing pediatricians, although we've gone through some tremendous changes around staffing when mm. we sort of adopted the framework for the Nova Scotia Health Authority, but we seem to be getting some trickle back, meaning that we're starting to get some more healthcare providers in around the pediatric aspect as well. But And they're young and keen. I just can see there could be so much energy around this uh, within all yeah. our institutions. And maybe look at how we can, and even though I know uh, the, the IWK is wanting to kind of get that certification uh, initially, but it would be interesting to see how we could sort of connect in some way as well. But yeah, yeah. Oh, and there's no reason why why that couldn't happen. You know, why that yeah. Couldn't happen. Well, then I, I think what what happens then, especially when you're trying to work with uh, the Nova Scotia Health Authority, because they see it as a systems kind of thing. Everything's a system, you know. But I think it it only. I mean, having certification in the management of pediatric pain, it's a no-brainer, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. All right. So listen, any final thoughts or advice for kids and parents with chronic pain during this pandemic? Sure. <laughs> Leave that at the end, eh? <clears throat> so um, there, are, there are some resources uh, through SCIP and, and elsewhere, um, and I'll let Aaron jump in as well on this. Any of our... Uh, chronic pain clinic patients, we are more than happy to hear from and we're happy to reach out and use whatever technology we're allowed to use to uh, support them uh, during this time when when people can't meet face to face. Um, so uh, I'm happy for people to know that. The patients hopefully feel that 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 were accessible even were, even though we're not visible. To echo what Alan said about the resources, we did pull together some resources. I'd say it seems like a decade ago, but I think in week two or three of, of this all. Um, and so there's some stress management, anxiety management, kind of some logging, mental health wellness apps, some distraction apps, and just some different tools that can be used to keep you busy and to kind of help with that self-care mm. and self-wellness in this time that we're a little bit more independent. Um, focus. I think I've also I've read a few articles. I think Chio shared one about um, how a lot of um, pediatric institutions, similar to what you said, uh, Maureen, about how you're emerged, there's not a problem to find beds right now, is that it seems that the kids that are coming in finally to emerge seem to be a bit sicker because people yeah. are keeping them at home with fear of, of not. And so I think my my note to that would be to reach out to folks like Alan just said to your care team or to to folks to engage into 
um, ask for help or to go in as as you normally would because I think it it's it's sad to hear that that kiddos may be more sick because we're hanging on to them at home with fear to to take them into the institutions. Yeah, you know, and I'll so, I'll echo that because it's not just the pediatric but the adult. But we're people are waiting way too long to come in. They're absolutely terrified they're going to get exposed to COVID, and most mm-hmm. people are not realizing that the emergency departments are basically seen as non-COVID units. We have infrastructure that d- diverts patients to COVID spaces, both for assessment and for admission. So Similar our, to the IWK. Yeah, so our merge is actually a non-COVID, uh, even though we look scary, we've got the masks and everything, <laughs> but a lot of parents have been pretty ingenious. I mean, because we're still seeing the broken bones, you know, kids are out in their bikes. And so, you know, parents have made masks for kids so that, when when they see us, they're like, oh, yeah, we all look we all look the same kind of thing, because I thought, how are kids going to respond to this, especially when we're doing painful procedures and, you know, uh, we've got masks and gowns and, and all these kinds of things. But, um, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I echo that so much, Erin. It's people need to know that it's OK to come. It's safe to come. Yeah. Yeah. So those resources um, are available on the SKIP website, which is kidsinpain.ca. K-I-D-S-I-N-P-A-I-N dot C-A. Mm-hmm. And uh, those are available for anybody. Yeah. Anytime. Alan, I'm just I'm going to add another. So pay, families who are have not been seen by the chronic pain team in uh, the IWK and are on a waiting list, do you have any recommendations for them or any suggestions about how they can manage this this difficult time too? We're always happy to talk to their primary okay. care providers, family physician, or whoever um, is uh, making the referral, uh, if we can help in that way. Those resources on uh, kidsinpain.ca um, would be useful for anybody. And uh, there's some, some great websites and, and uh, with information about pain that can be very helpful. There's also a um, a page, I think it's called TAO, T-A-O, within the Nova Scotia Health Authority. Have either one of you seen that? Or? No, I haven't. That's a, you know, I'm just thinking about parents as well, right? Um, yeah. But uh, it's, it's, if you go into those updates, which I did today, actually, I actually clicked on, I'm curious now about the numbers uh, within our area. There is, um, uh, you know how you have physician, uh, Ellen, you would probably see this before, Aaron. it's a physician updates. And in those, so in the most recent update, it'll talk about, um, so the most, comp, the, the most recent up-to-date numbers. But it, from that, it actually mm. links into these other web pages. And TAO mm. is T-A-O. I can't remember what the yep. mnemonic stands for. There's some uh, very good. Oh, therapy assistance online? Yes, yes. And it's free. I've got it now. Yep. Yeah. And I think that's something that might be of interest, too, to even mm. p- for parents. Yeah, it's, it sounds wonderful. <laughs> we might, we might uh, throw that into our uh, resource list. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. All right, so we'll yeah. end it there, and thank you so much. It's, it's nice to talk to you guys, actually, in the middle yeah, of a pandemic. It is. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.